The 36 Days I Roam is a limited edition artist book created by Kui Jin Zhe, a multidisciplinary artist born and raised in Dalian, China, who has been based in Canada since 2009. The 36 Days I Roam integrates a poem written in Chinese and English with 38 new paintings inspired by the artist's meditations and travel. Collectors of a book from the 300 copy print run will receive a customized copy that includes the options of a 36-minute online mindfulness interaction, a phone call, or a handwritten letter exchange. The 36 Days I Roam is part of a 10-year social interaction experiment through which Jin Zi aims to conduct her practice as a portal to awaken awareness. To learn more about the book and collecting process, visit the artist website, Kuijinze, that's C-U-I-J-I-N-Z-H-E dot com. Welcome to Momus the Podcast. We're your hosts, Sky Gooden and Lauren Wetmore. And this week, we're bringing you the season's finale in the form of another guest-hosted episode. I love these guest-hosted episodes. Yeah. Today's episode is a conversation hosted by the phenomenal Jessica Lynn, who is a writer and critic and founder of Arts.Black, and who, I might also add, is... Aside from being one of the truest writers working in art today, is also one hell of a colleague. Oh my gosh, our favorite colleague, basically. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a rocky few years working in this space. Obviously, people are a bit checkered right now. And Jessica has been so consistent and has, I don't know, just never made it feel like a reach to to like show us an abundance and a certain generosity of spirit that has, as they say, just been really constant over the couple of years that we've been working with her now. I totally agree. Man, can that woman answer an email with <laughs> tact and grace and on time. It's just and like that that's important. Like I don't want I don't want this to sound like it's nothing because it's, no, it's actually not everything. <laughs> for me. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just say that we we started working with Jess on um, the Emerging Critics Residency, which she authored and hosted uh, mm-hmm. to great acclaim. Yes, she ran the August edition. It was titled Because My Metier is Black after Toni Morrison. And it was uh, an all black intergenerational cohort of emerging art writers um, and editors. And we had a post-residency mixer in the fall, and I just really remember the energy of that cohort coming together seamlessly as though it had been unbroken over those few months of being away from one another, and that it was an extremely feeling space. It was, you know, we're we're used to these post-residency mixers kind of bringing threads together that had been, you know... um, established in the residency in terms of like writing practice or certain kinds of um, goals that the residents had set for themselves they wanted to like catch us up on the progress of but in this case it was just this room of people who yes had had significant accomplishments in those few months space but actually I think really just wanted to connect with one another emotionally and I, Uh I really have such respect and admiration for Jess as setting I think a precedent for that and creating a space for that um that could contain it, but also maintain it, if that makes sense. 
Yes, a hundred percent. And you're really going to see that in this um, in this interview that Jess mm. does with Dr. Kemi Adeyemi, who is associate professor of gender, women, and sexuality studies, and the director of the Black Embodiment Studio at the University of Washington. Mm -hmm. Jess talks to Kemi about her new book called Feels Right, Black Queer Women and the Politics of Partying in Chicago. Jess calls Kemi a world builder. Is that right? Yeah. And along those lines, this text that we're going to explore, it sits in this space in between writing on culture and being in culture, or as Kemi talks a lot about in the interview, being in community. Right. And it seems like on the one hand, the book comes from Kemi's academic context. It describes itself as an ethnography of how Black queer women in Chicago use dance to assert their physical and effective rights to the city. Yeah. But then on the other hand, you have the cultural anthropologist Amy Meredith Cox describing Kemi's prose accurately as, quote, crackling with essential sensory detail and the organics of life. Um, and this really comes out in the conversation with Jess, where Kemi describes the work that she was doing in the academy as feeling aligned to the work that she was doing in her nightlife and how it felt right for her to take these things seriously, like take the the things that she was doing for what she describes as release and pleasure as a kind of sense making. Mm. It strikes me this is sort of um, an unusual uh, subject to feature in that it stems from a dissertation, one assumes, or at least from the academic context. And yet, for those um, more, let's say, somatic pieces to be um, stressed and like lift, sort of elevated through this conversation, I think says a lot about the work that Kemi is doing in that space. Yeah, I found the in the interview really inspiring um, to know that this kind of work can happen in and evolve from an academic context. Mm -hmm. And I'm particularly excited to be sharing a conversation about a book like this um, out of a university press because, uh, I mean, for many reasons, but one of them that the knock-on effect of art forum being sold to PMC is that book forum has closed. And Hannah Zeeven was pointing out that one of the only kind of arts adjacent publications that regularly covered books coming from university presses um, was Book Forum. And yeah, she said really kind of eloquently that Book Forum published reviews of uni university press publications, quote, like they matter to culture because they do. <laughs> so I'm excited and glad that we're able to to kind of do some of that work. I'm excited too. Perhaps without further ado, then here is Jessica Lin introducing a reading and conversation with Dr. Kemi Adeyemi on her book, Feels Right, Black Queer Women and the Politics of Partying in Chicago, available now from Duke University Press. I'm Jessica Lin your guest host for this episode of the Moments Podcast, in which I speak with the inimitable Dr. Kimi Adeyemi. I first met Kimi virtually almost seven years ago when I worked at Recess, a small arts nonprofit in Brooklyn. Recess organized a critical writing fellowship as part of its programming, and Kimi was the ever-sharp editor who supported the writers who would publish through this program. I thought to myself then, but if I could just have half an ounce of Kimmy's incisive relationship to language, 
I do just fine as a writer myself. I still feel this way now. Later, I'd have the privilege of participating in the Black Embodiment Studio, an arts writing incubator initiative that can be founded and directs in service of building more rigorous discourse about contemporary Black art at the University of Washington, where she is also an associate professor of gender, women, and sexuality studies. I think of Kimmy as a world builder, noting always the constellations of culture and politics that inform the material conditions of our lives. I had already planned to read her latest book, Feels Right, Black Queer Women and the Politics of Partying in Chicago. But when I was asked to speak with Kimmy for this podcast, it really did feel like a high honor. What pleasures are sweeter than talking with your friends about the brilliant things they write, create, and offer to us. In this conversation, we talk about the origins of Kimmy's queer nightlife scholarship, her relationship to the dance floor broadly, and dancing in Chicago specifically. We also discuss what it means to trouble methods of ethnography, the limitations of gender, exhaustion on the dance floor and within the academy, and what it means to take seriously the complexity of Black queer life. I feel thankful to be learning from Kimmy in all of the ways, and I hope you get excited too and find some time to spend with this amazing book. The very small body of work we have on Black queer women's material night lives demonstrates the event can be a dangerous site to inhabit and an ill-fitting analytical framework to mobilize. Black queer women are largely absent and illegible with an existing queer nightlife scholarship that is overwhelmingly centered on people who identify as men, and where the very phrase queer nightlife has become a kind of metonym for the scenes and spaces that they have historically been attached to, such as gay bars and drag scenes. The other nightlife genre that queer scholarship centers, but which we should continue to pay more attention to, is the ball, which has historically cultivated diverse trans-femme subjectivities. However, we have yet to illuminate how, if at all, the language surrounding and experiences of Black queer and lesbian women may shape ball scenes. This does not mean, of course, that Black queer women do not go out and party. The limited archive of Black queer women's nightlives shows us that they are not folded into or are systematically policed out of public space and allegedly safe spaces like gay and lesbian bars and clubs. And these exclusions are almost always a joint effort of the state and ordinary LGBTQ people. The very appearance of Black queer women on the street or in line at the club is seen as the result of our inappropriate publicness. We become events in and of ourselves, and our presence is read as a punishable misplacement in and misuse of public and semi-public space. Our genders are suspect. Our IDs are suspect. Our motives are suspect. Our music is suspect. Our sexualities are suspect. Our dancing is suspect. Our releases are suspect. As a result of this policing, and as a way to avoid this policing, Black queer women have long crafted their nightlives within ordinary spaces of the private home, the rented apartment, the ultra-secretive invite-only event, and in sites that are not explicitly queer or queer-friendly, but that provide them cover for gathering, such as ordinary corporate sites like sports stadiums and restaurant chains. The ordinary is a site that Black queer women have been pushed into because of the cultural and legislative practices intent on limiting our ways of thinking, moving, and feeling in public. 
Black queer women are also pushed into the realm of the ordinary by knowledge systems that traffic in and depend upon the event and its attendant publicness for coherence. Black queer women's modes of being out in the night are not legible within systems of thought that depend upon the highly gendered framework of the event, which directs us to sites full of people who can afford to appear in public in particular ways, i.e. men. When I'm feeling especially pessimistic about the work we do in the academy, I think that Black queer women are not of interest to academic thought because of the ways that we've been pushed into the ordinary, deemed uneventful and thus uninteresting and unprofitable. Scholars invested in Black queer women's lives have to compete for attention. Attention brings us accolades, that bring us resources, that buy us time to pay more attention to Black queer women. But how to compete with entire academic and popular culture industries built through producing queer and gay men's nightlives as extraordinarily eventful, as deeply consequential, as highly productive to think with? Maybe we can pay a different kind of attention to Black queer women's lives when we divest from the terminologies of the event potentiality matrix, including new, different, progress, liberation, healing, and freedom, and get wrapped up in the ordinary terminologies of endurance, persistence, expectation, regularity, normalcy, and even boredom or disaffection. Thinking with the ordinary might help us attend to the ways that Black queer lives are sometimes deliberately staged out of view or at a vibration that is only barely felt, certainly by those who aren't supposed to be seeing or feeling the energy in the first place. The ordinary can be a racialized and gendered space-time that we can historicize and contextualize in order to illuminate Black queer and lesbian women's modes of coming together. An interdisciplinary cohort of people committed to Black, feminist, and queer life have been deploying creative methods for rethinking the timeline of and relation between the event and the ordinary in order to sense Black and Black queer life in more generative ways. In the process of thinking through the ordinary, they demand more from the practice of academic writing, but also critical inquiry writ large. Detailing the Black queer ordinary requires a particular analytical and ethical attention that can reshape how we read and write about Black queer life, while also reshaping the ways we tend toward the Black queer and lesbian women that we work with in the academy. Excavating the Black queer ordinary might tell us a lot about what we expect from Black queer life, and from the study of Black queer life. Our work is to illuminate possibilities of expansive Black queer feeling while also paying more acute attention to how our hopes, desires, and expectations of the pleasures of Black queer life and nightlife might be grounded in an event potentiality matrix that can actually flatten Black queer life and overdetermine the physical and temporal conditions in which we think such life is lived. Maybe we can write ourselves into more generative and just practices of tending to our interlocutors in the process. I'm so excited to be talking to you today, Dr. Shimi Adeyemi, um, about this phenomenal book, Feels Right, Black Queer Women and the Politics of Parting in Chicago. I feel as though I have gotten to know many elements of your world over the past few years. And so this, this conversation feels like a long time in the making. Yeah, so glad to be here and excited to be in conversation with you. Yeah, like we've definitely crossed paths in sort of smaller ways over the years. So um, I'm looking forward to having like a focused time with you. 
So you open the podcast with a really beautiful reading um, that we'll we'll come back to later in the conversation. But for folks listening, um, this book is a study of Black queer nightlife grounded in the complexities of Chicago um, as experienced through three parties, energy, slow-mo, and party noir. And there's a lot to discuss and wade through, and I recognize we might not get through it all in this hour that we have. But I really believe in origin stories, and I believe that beginnings are important. So I want to start there. Feels right, in your words, and I'm going to read a little bit. Uh, Looks at the queer dance floor through routine and spectacular moments of distress and discomfort so that we might take Black queer women seriously as complex beings who adroitly navigate bad feelings and disagreement and do so in the pursuit of complex Black queer communities. Talk to us about how you came into this query and why it carried such gravitas for you as a scholar. I think the origin of the project really is in my own partying and my own um, experiences of nightlife in Chicago. And I don't say that in the sense that like, you know, all scholarship is sort of a narcissistic gesture. I say that because I was doing a certain kind of work in the classroom and then I was doing a certain kind of work um, in the club and they felt like the same kind of work, but I didn't necessarily feel like I had the language for narrating that labor as as really productive to me and as productive to the people that I was, you know, encountering on the dance floor or around the dance floor or whatever. And so, you know, I am then also reading scholarship, a very, very, very small, you know, body of scholarship on queer nightlife, nightlife studies in general. And that work was feeling like really optimistic and utopian in this way that I recognize the value of, you know, that framework. But it wasn't helping me think about, like I said, like that, like that hard labor the sort of mechanical labor of trying to be in community. So um, it kind of just felt ne- you know, right and natural to turn my attention to the things that I was doing for release and for pleasure uh, and take that seriously as um, a kind of sense making for my own self and my own kind of intellectual uh, process, but also that the community that I was a part of, you know, I'm only a part of a partial part of that community. And so like the the larger sense making of all of the people who are coming from all different kinds of environments onto that one dance floor. And, you know, we're here under the banner of, you know, a queer party or something, but there's kind of like nothing that really connects us um, in some sort of deeper ways. And so what does that mean that we keep trying to come to this party and like forge a connection under this title of this is a queer party um, and so then, you know, if we're asking, what does that mean that we're coming together? We're also, what does that mean that we're here under this banner of queerness? The origin story is really about a, a process of me trying to figure out what it means for me to be coming together in these uh, spaces. And and of course, then the experiences of the people around me and, and what kinds of questions can we ask if we take this space seriously as doing a kind of work? that feels sometimes really personal and individual, but that is deeply, deeply, you know, collective and social. Absolutely. And, you know, I think a part of what I appreciate about this book is that methodology is constantly referenced. And I I understand that as a gesture um, 
that many scholars make in their monographs and texts, of course, but there's a way in which you have an insistence on revealing your hand to the reader that I appreciate. And I have a couple of questions that I want to get to about methodology, but I also kind of want to have another element of this origin story, which is to say, what did it mean or what were those first approaches and conversations like with the organizers of the parties that you decided to focus on, that you had been going to? How did you kind of initiate a trust level with them within the context of this like academic endeavor? I mean, this was such a anxiety-ridden, shame-ridden process. Like, I am not a person who um, is necessarily inquisitive about other people's li- or strangers' lives. Um, I am not a person who, you know, when other people want to talk about feelings, I am like, you know, let's create this barrier. You don't have to, you know what I mean? Like, you don't have to. Like, I don't want you to think that I am encouraging you to have a connection right now. So <laughs> I, I had to... <laughs> I had to really, I mean, it was really, really, really challenging for me, really challenging Um, because doing ethnographic work was undoing all of the ways that I had kind of been trained to not ask people that next question beyond how you doing or whatever, Um, or that that's the only kind of line of question that you can ask like an intimate, you know, friend, family, whomever, not even family, actually. And so it, oh my God, it was such, it was such a struggle. I mean, it really, really was. Um, And in some regard, having the framework of being able to say, hey, I'm working on this project, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm having conversations and I'm interviewing people about their experiences on the dance floor. That was kind of a useful shield where even though I myself felt like this was such an interpersonal intrusion, um, I had some sort of like apparatus that I myself could hide behind and say, you know, you know, this is for, it's not just for me, you know, I'm not just trying to pry basically, because even though I knew methodologically that I'm not just prying into people's lives, it really felt like that. Um, which is also why I'm so grateful to all the people who did talk to me because I still carry that, belief in myself that I was prying (laughs) and um although I think I've gotten better about like holding what I experienced was like the shame and the anxiety of that um experience and and reframing that as like people really wanting to talk about their experiences and feeling seen I hope by you know somebody like me asking them to to share those experiences and that's why I feel yeah I feel so grateful like the book is dedicated to all of those people who had those conversations with me. And um, that gratitude is not only that those conversations helped me write the book, but like um, it is also kind of gratitude about um, how I, I myself feel more confident and stronger in being able to ask those questions and being able to hold that space for people to have those conversations. Um, Yeah. So that's, that's one that's one part of of the answer to your question and the other part is is a little bit more kind of larger scale like when I was first beginning the work you know there's a lot of people who I do know in the parties who I recognize we see each other but we don't know each other and I could recognize you 
but I have no idea what your name is. I might be able to say, oh, I think that that person comes with these other people usually, but that's kind of it. And so sometimes by virtue of just having seen one another pretty frequently, there is a kind of familiarity, you know, we can kind of trust that, you know, we're, we're at least coming together once a month. So maybe I don't think you're going to like take me out back and kill me or something, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> so, um, some of those uh, early invitations were really like, hey, you know, can I have this conversation with you? We can meet wherever you want to, to have that conversation. Um, I can come to your place. You can come to mine. We can go to get coffee, whatever. Um, and so there was really only one or two people who the answer was no. And um, one of them I thought was like an interesting no. They were just sort of like, I don't really have capacity to like think right now like I don't want to do that reviewing um which I appreciated and then the other no's were more just like scheduling was really <laughs> could really be a challenge you know and that's fine um so yeah yeah I don't know if that kind of is the answer no it definitely does I mean for me it raises a series of follow-up questions which the first may feel very um elementary even but I'll ask it anyway because I'm curious if this book was always a book for you if the project could have had a different type of shape. Um, because I I understand you as a writer and editor, but I also understand you as a cultural organizer in some senses. And I'm wondering if there was ever a moment when you thought, hmm, maybe this query shows up like this. Maybe it's not kind of a linear, contiguous narrative effort. Well, I think the dirty little secret about me is that I'm not that interesting or creative. That's not true. <laughs> I just mean like I I uh, really always imagined this to be a written project. I, I never was like, you know what, like I could stage this as a party or a series of parties in part because I saw the amount of work that it takes to put on parties. And I was like, no way, <laughs> like no way am I going to do that. Um, and you, I got to a point um in the lifespan of the project where I was like, I can't even stay up that late. Like, you know, certainly not make it a part of my practice. And there are people like my good friend, Kareem Kupchandani, who were producing events at the same time as doing their own nightlife research. And the, and the production of the event was a part of the research and the production of that space was a part of the gesture of kind of giving back. Um, but for me, it was always like pretty straightforward. Pretty, pretty straightforward. Yeah. And even like, it's been interesting, like thinking about, um, you know, the book is out now and everybody's like, where's the book party? Where's the book launch? You know, you should throw a party for the book launch. And I understand that. And I want that. And, but I, um, I can't, uh, fathom doing that kind of cultural production around, um, something. And that's what I meant. Like my imagination can be quite, uh, sort of limited in terms of how how creatively I want to reimagine my idea in a different kind of format. I hear that. I'll also say in the book, there is a lot of mag imagination in how you approach the form of storytelling. And I think it leads me to this question that I want to ask about the dance floor itself and some of the um, myth-making that goes into... Uh, how black queer dance floors are positioned. You know, 
you are really careful and ardent to kind of advocate for a different reading of the dance floor. One that doesn't negate a type of sacredness or sanctuary, if you will. But it's also asking us as your readers to like do a more maybe difficult task of understanding how like nightlife writ large is never disentangled from the consequences of neoliberalism. Given that, like what does it then mean to understand like how a community comes into being or not or fractures itself, um, et cetera, et cetera. What do we miss when conditions of neoliberalism are not implicated in our thinking around the constellation of nightlife that we're participating in or that we encounter. Um, knowing that the dance floor has quite literally saved so many Black queer women, Black queer folks, and yet, as your book demonstrates, every organizer, every attendee is constantly detailing and outlying illness, sometimes chronically so, a family movement, migration, bills not coming, being paid, invoices not coming in on time, gentrification of the city. Um, what do we miss if we aren't taken seriously um, the like material conditions of a neoliberal architecture? I think I'll kind of give a sideways answer. I think that our tendency when we're talking about um, queer nightlife and when we write about it um, in the academy, our tendency is to be really optimistic about it and to be really utopian about it, even when we're writing about you know the material challenges that people uh, are bringing onto the dance floor. It's always with an eye toward, and then we overcome them as soon as we get on the dance floor, and it, we might overcome them only for you know the span of three minutes or or three hours, but we overcome it, and that. Something about that linearity really frustrates me um, because I think exactly as you're kind of pointing out, it kind of produces this idea that we can somehow be outside of the material conditions that have, you know, disciplined us into particular subjectivities or that have, you know, led us to the dance floor for whatever reason it produces this idea that if the dance floor is this utopian moment we we somehow can step outside of that entrapment and you know we might feel that way and we can honor the way that we might feel that way temporarily on the dance floor but as far as a kind of more rigorous critical thinking my question always is always okay well we might feel that way but like literally what is happening you know um we might feel something, but something is also at work that conditions the possibilities of that feeling in the first place and conditions our desire to frame that feeling as something utopian um, or kind of out of time. Uh, and so I don't necessarily want to say like I'm some sort of anti-utopian, you know, pessimist or anything like that. I think for me, I just am really oriented toward the kind of hard, boring, tedious work of, of having a life. So I think when we do not pay attention to, you know, political economy, we miss the granular details of how people create that life, the literal, the doing of it. Um, for me, it's not interesting to say, you know, we go to the party and we feel good. I want to know how you go to the party. What do you do on the dance floor? What is the process of that feeling? 
Like, how do you produce it in your body? How do you produce it in your words, etc.? And I think when we kind of start there at that sort of micro gesture, it can tell us a different story about how we um, interface with something like, you know, neoliberal economic decisions. It can tell us a different story about how the cultural resonances of something like a, a political economic regime manifest uh, in our bodies, in our in our social world, and in, in whatever kind of environment we want to, you know, organize our thinking around. And so for me, it's like an it's like an exercise in rigor. Not to say that, you know, we're not being rigorous when we're we're you know framing the dance more in a kind of utopian way. But for me, it, it forces me to ask a different kind of set of questions, I guess. And that is what keeps my brain, you know, working and keeps me feeling like, you know, uh, I'm not flatlining. Absolutely. I think the kind of asking a set of questions in the context of our research is important because it is quite clear, at least as you show in your book, that those folks are already asking those questions anyway, but they're already yeah. being considered yeah. and kind of in the air. They're, they are the weather. Um, and to kind of not concretize them and dishonest I might even argue um but I also I want to come back to this black girl because I love that that oof, that opens the book and I really hope folks buy the book you should buy the book everyone listening but this black girl is both um a person that immediately intrigues you and also kind of poses some troubling for you in your approach as a researcher, um, as a writer, thinking about all of these things that we're talking about, right? The material conditions of nightlife. Why start with this Black girl? And did you ever find out who this Black girl is? I don't want to give spoilers, but it's such a great way to open and kind of like ease us into this broader conversation that you're having. But I was just so drawn to the image that you create for us of this black girl standing up on the stage and being like, all y'all need to go home because I'm the only black person in here. And then they just leave. Mm -hmm. Talk about that moment. Talk about the decision to have her, yeah, to have her open and kind of lead off, kick off, if you will, um, the search that she did. I... I still think about that moment. I mean, I think we, I think um, we could all be so lucky to find a moment when we're in the field, air quotes, where um, something that we imagine like our research question emerges or appears, you know, sort of live in the flesh. And also that happening is, um, is not just confirming, you know, the questions that we were already asking. It's not the so-called perfect example, but that um, it actually pushes our thinking forward. And that for me, that moment really um, captured that for me where, you know, I was doing my field work. I kind of already had my question about, you know, the ways that uh, Black people kind of participate in nightlife in uh, overwhelmingly white gentrifying spaces. And, you know, we could all tell the story, right? Like, you know, the ways that the city uh, extracts a kind of cultural capital from Black people uh, and uses that to, you know, raise the, the rent and the cultural capital of the very neighborhoods that the Black people are then being pushed out of. So I was like, okay, I got this perfect moment, right? This Black woman in this, uh, you know, white cocktail bar in the, the middle of gentrifying Logan Square who gets up on stage and basically like literally ruins um, the DJ's setup. 
uh, and it explicitly ruins it because she says she's the only black person in the room. So I remain compelled by that moment. I remember telling my writing group the next week or whatever we met and I told everybody the story and people, I mean, I have never seen people so excited to hear a story. <laughs> like just because, you know, I think it's so rare that we see somebody burn it all down. Right. You know what I mean? And be like, I'm also, not only am I burning it down, I'm going to tell you I'm not with the shit for these reasons. And then leave. And then just and then, and then leave. around. <laughs> just go. Such a powerful moment. And I was so jealous. I just loved it. I loved, I still, I still love like thinking about that moment. But that moment also challenged me. Or maybe I'll say I, I took up the challenge to think about that moment in a different, um, from a different perspective. Um, because there was embedded in both the disruption and her flight from the bar a really particular kind of racial spatial logic that um, I think is much more complex than what maybe she was sort of publicly using as the, the rationale for her for her riot. And some of that complexity is, for example, the racial and ethnic history of Logan Square, which is um, quite has a quite sort of long and diverse history. It is not just a white neighborhood um, in the in the way that we can kind of loosely describe, you know, what happens in gentrification. And the South Side is not a sort of monolithic black neighborhood. It also has a really complex um, racial, ethnic, national history. And so when I myself had to push myself to move beyond this being a a so-called perfect example of blackness disrupting the logics of gentrification, I had to think more complexly about what do we mean when we um, interpret a space as having a particular racial geography, sometimes at the expense of the the complexity of that racial geography uh, on the one hand, And then the second thing that I had to kind of think more closely about was what about her seemingly black body on view is uh, sort of producing this image of what we might think of as a perfect black politics. Do you know what I mean? Like by virtue of her being a black woman, getting up saying out loud, I am a black woman and this is the, the reasons why I have authority over over the space or over this particular brand of refusing the space, why am I myself imagining that as a kind of neat, perfect Black politics? Um, And I think uh, I wanted to open the book with that moment and asking those two questions about our implicit assumptions about the racialized geography of the neighborhood and the city and our implicit assumptions that get embedded and mapped onto something that we might call a black woman's body, I need to unpack those. If I'm going to stage this con- this larger conversation about the racialized queer geographies of, of nightlife in the city um, as well. So I think that moment for me was a moment where I really started to think about what do I, what do I, what am I actually really trying to get at basically? What am I really trying to do? Are there other moments like that for you that, because I feel like, that stands out to me because it's so explicit in how you are trying to kind of work through and and trouble what she might represent, but also kind of what is unseen or unsaid in her gestures. I mean, in fact, you, you say, right, that I'm at the party <laughs> and 
this person is making a declaration and I'm standing here, literally a black person standing here watching her. Um, but are there other moments or were there other moments for you in the research process out in the field when these disruptions, as you name them, emerged? And how do you make sense of them? And how do you make a decision as to kind of what gets revealed to us as the reader, but also what becomes data for you in like a larger intellectual project um, that might show up in other ways beyond the book? I think for me, it it, it really... Uh... There's another great example is that um, chapter on Party Noir, which was a really challenging chapter for me to write because um, I think I was really grappling again with uh, those narratives I had been telling myself or that I think we all tell ourselves about what a perfect Black politics, a perfect Black queer politics might look like, what, you know, you don't want to air out dirty laundry and um, and yet that dirty laundry is precisely the thing that can help us think in in new and potentially more productive ways. So I really struggled in writing that chapter. That chapter took the longest to write. I'm still not entirely sure that um it's it still feels like a kind of work in progress, even though it's, you know, in print. But I think that chapter continues to be a chapter and Party Noir's struggles around creating a party space that is accountable to both the energy levels of the people producing the party and the people who are attending the party, the, the, the demands and the needs of the people attending the party, that remains a conflict that challenges my thinking about um, what Black Queer Nightlife can do, what people can and should expect from it, and what the ethnographers you know, responsibility is to telling a story about, you know, the people who have given their stories over us to us, you know, to, to write about. Um, so I have, I, I always, I have a lot of, I don't know if the word is concerned, but I'm really curious and nervous to hear uh, about how the people who are involved in that party might read that chapter and respond to it really when it comes down to it in a way that feels a lot more um, urgent than, for example, this Black girl who I never, who never reappears, in, uh, despite my efforts to kind of find her. Something about her not appearing, at least in my mind, I'm like, well, out of sight, out of mind. She reads the chapter, I will never know. But like with the Party Noir chapter in particular, and certainly uh, the Energy and Slimo chapters, I'm like, these people are, you know, going to read this. We are in dialogue directly and indirectly. And so uh, that kind of ethics of using real people to work through your uh, intellectual projects is something that I've really been, um, you know, uh, attending to and contending with, you know, uh, in, in my mind, at least. Yeah, it's it's never neat, right? And it's also never linear in fashion, too. So I appreciate you sharing that, because I also recognize that, too, it's like a risk and vulnerability, right? acknowledge that mm-hmm. you have concerns <laughs> you know the thing is out and yet maybe in some respects you might have made a different choice here or there um well i think like yeah that 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 the different choice i could have written every single one of these chapters and been like look at this beautiful example of black queer nightlife look at all this utopian examples of people feeling free 
you know, over the course of the party, that would have been a really easy book to, to write. And it would have been a really easy book to read. Um, but it wouldn't have been honest to my own, um, you know, intellectual interests. And I don't think it would have been honest to the labor. I think when we are really paying attention to the conflicts that arrives in a party, we're also building space where we can pay attention to the hard work that it takes to show up to the party and to put the party on. And so um, you have to, you know, wade through the muck to be able to like shine the light on, you know, the people who make it possible for us to even gather together. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a challenge and a struggle to be in community. And so like for all the ways that I feel nervous about some aspects of the book, um, you know, I think we need to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. I think for me as a reader, there, there, that, what you just said are two reasons is a reason why I appreciate two of the frameworks that show up in the book and two of the frameworks that I'm still thinking about. One is slowness, right? That kind of emerges within the study of slow-mo um, and slowness as you position it and offer it to us is a potential container for intimacy, sexual, non-sexual. It's a movement vocabulary. It's a care approach for the organizers and attendees who, who are there. I think it is Adrian who talks about kind of how being at slow-mo just allows them to be close if they need to be close to someone, but also just like shoot the shit, you know? Um, and slowness uh, is positioned as a framework for sustainability within this kind of rapidly, maybe rapidly is not the right word, but kind of within explicit um, larger apparatus of like daily violence, it's quotidian violence. Um, the other framework, which I immediately <laughs> texted you about, um, because I think there's, to me, it's, it is a pulse, maybe repulse. I don't, I don't know if that's fair to kind of think about this in the singular, but it's the ordinary and the black queer ordinary. And those two ideas are both connected to me and also connected for me. And also what you offer through slowness and through the black queer ordinary is kind of this very generous invitation for black queer folks to begin to like see themselves on different terms and of course I can only speak for myself and so I'm using the I here but I was able to make sense in a different way of the kind of mundane living that he's never sexy but doesn't need to be you know, and it, it's really shape-shifting, I think. And it's really transformative to encounter an insistence on the ordinary as you argue for it against the kind of positionality of the event, the kind of magnanimous, liberatory, freedom-making moment. Like the Black queer ordinary comes in and asks us to readjust expectations, but also maybe physically, emotionally, spiritually readjust ourselves to nightlife in general and so this is a long way of the of saying i love what you offer to us in 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 those frameworks and i would love for you to talk a little bit more about what it has meant for you to excavate the black queer ordinary and position it 
and trouble our understanding of Black queer life in this way. Yeah, I love that that struck you. I think I feel most compelled by some of the work I was doing in that chapter that sits with me still and I and I think is kind of shaping next projects, et cetera, et cetera, you know, into the endless future. But I love that you said um, that it's about adjusting expectations. And I really think that that um, is the work that I want that chapter to do and that I want the whole book to do. Um, and I think thinking of the through the framework of the ordinary is just one method that we might have or deploy to to adjust our expectations uh, around who and what we expect to come alongside the phrase Black queer woman um, or Black queer women is sort of in the plural. And I think the, the mundane living that is never very sexy is precisely the adjustment that I kind of want to be making, at least from a sort of academic institutional perspective that so very much depends upon the spectacular event for our coherence. You know, what is the academy? If we cannot produce uh, an event and a problem that has to be solved. And um, for a variety of reasons that I kind of try to map out in the book, Black queer women, Black queer people, Black lesbians do not um, ever seem to assume the category or emerge into the category of the event or the event worthy. And so there is a kind of... Um, structural kind of intellectual barrier that contributes to the ways that we just simply ignore or don't pay attention to or don't want to pay attention to um, Black queer women, um, Black queer people, Black queer lesbians. I, I keep uh, re reiterating and rehearsing the different kind of uh, sexual subjectivities uh, because Black queer women are not necessarily always the same as Black lesbian and there are people who identify as Black queer lesbians. But any of those any of those arrangements, any sort of non-normative sexuality when attached to a black woman is part of the kind of um, ignorable subject position that I'm trying to kind of map out in that chapter. Uh, and so I'm just taking up black women in this particular conversation in this particular book. But uh, the, the, those those categories are a lot more kind of fluid, I think, than you know my language is allowing for right now. But I something I was kind of like trying to figure out a way, you know, we're, we live in a day and age where it's like not legal <laughs> to say, well, or, you know, appropriate to say, oh, I'm not paying attention to black lesbians because I don't care or they don't matter. But that's the reason. And so if you're saying implicitly through the graduate students you take on, the materials that you cite, uh, the books that you write, if you're saying implicitly that Black women, Black queer women, Black lesbians don't matter, I can't necessarily call you out on that in that same language. So I have to develop another vocabulary where I can define and describe your practices of ignorance, and I can historicize them, and then I can hopefully maybe uh, provide us a way to, you know, course correct 
basically. So uh, that's why I was thinking about, okay, well, what happens if I try to use the language of the event and the ordinary as the organizing principles of academic thought or the event in particular as the organizing principle of academic thought and that people who can produce the spectacular event in their intellectual practice are the ones who gain a kind of legibility, who gain resources, who gain platforms, um, and then they just kind of continue to reproduce the event as the sort of foundational logic to, to intellectual thought. And um, so maybe we then, you know, I was thinking as I'm like developing this chapter, so then maybe we need to continue the work that people have been trying to do to attend to the ordinary as a as a site and as a as a way of being and as a set of practices that so many people inhabit but that are not visible uh to the academy or rather they are visible but the academy doesn't think that they're profitable um so i think i'm trying to spend that chapter mapping out you know when we ignore groups of people uh it's not because we don't have well, we don't have the interest but it's also because we're really profit oriented in the academy and um yeah i don't know i got a little off off track there uh, no but yeah. no 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 i mean it's it's not i mean you know what i what i think about and what i want to ask back to you given all of this is do you ever worry that in the act of an unveiling if you will or a revealing that you also are rendering legible things that should not actually be legible and like how do you think yeah. about covertness here to um both yeah both within the context of the ordinary but also within the context of this academic competition as you term it right and does it ever give you pause in some respects to think about um, to think about a transparency around these lives, our lives, that might then become fodder for exploitation or an enacting or further further violences or harm? That's one of the main reasons that I wrote that chapter is because I started to have concerns about, for all the ways that I am annoyed about the absence of women of color and Black women in particular in nightlife studies and in queer nightlife studies, for all the ways I'm anxious and annoyed about that, I was like, oh shit, now I'm writing this book that people are going to assign as the correction to the other books that they're assigning or as the supplement you know, to the other books that they're assigning. And I was asking myself that those same questions that you just posed to me, like, um, and I was sort of like, how can I slow down that process, that consumption process, where we believe that if we read it, if we see it, we know it. How can I slow that down? How can I write a book that you will read, but you cannot step away from it and be like, okay, well, now I get it. That was the thing that I wanted to stop. <laughs> and I think I tried to do it in the formatting of that chapter on energy, where I do talk about the Black queer ordinary. I tried to slow that process down by 
using the subheadings, the subtitles as direct questions to the reader rather than, you know, a subheading typically tells us what to read for or how we're going to read or what we're going to learn. Using that subtitle to ask the reader, what are you expecting to learn? To what extent do you think that you are going to be able to take something away from these stories? And what do you need to do to divest from that expectation? So I tried to, I tried to build that refusal of like pure legibility into the formatting of the writing itself. I think that's one method that I tried to do that. The other was that, um, the kind of vignettes, the ethnographic vignettes in that chapter are um, really like, um, they're not, I, I don't interpret them. They're just uh, the description of different scenes in the party. And uh, I think for me a little bit was to let the fact that sometimes people go to the party and they just party and they just dance, let that be enough. We don't sometimes have to interpret it. Um, so what can I do to just document that this happened, that these people were here um, and they had a good time or sometimes had a terrible time? Um, but if we don't have an archive, how can I produce an archive, uh, but one that uh, limits your abilities to kind of overdetermine what's happening in it? And, you know, it's an experiment, you know, who knows? what will happen. But um, I, I, that was really my attempt to, to anticipate the question that you just asked me about unveiling and revealing and what that offers up to people who maybe don't need to know or be in the know. Thank you for that. I want to, if I can, just read the last block of questions in that energy chapter, because the way it closes is so beautiful, Kimmy. Um, <laughs> Thank you. So this chapter ends as such. How do I need Black queer women to do my work? Do I avoid Black queer women in order to do my work? How do I need them to help me think? How do I need them to be absent to help me think? What are the key words I use to describe Black queer women? Where, on the spectrum from ordinary to extraordinary, do my key words position Black queer women? Is my writing about Black queer women or is it about my ego? Am I just hoping that my research is about badass shit or is it really? Is my research radical or am I just citing Black queer women? Are Black queer women actually doing this or am I just assuming they are? What do I need from Black queer women? What do I expect from Black queer women? What do Black queer women expect from me? How am I listening to Black queer women? How do I know? How do they know? Do I think about myself more than I think about Black queer women? Be honest. And I, I love that you give this, like, you give this back to the reader, you know. And I th that chapter to me is also really profound um, because, it, again, as a as your reader, I see the grappling with methodology, you know, um, and an insistence on being super, super radically transparent about where those shifts are happening and, like, how you are making ethical decisions, um, which I know is not, you know, this book is very well written. I'm sure highly revised, highly edited, <laughs> but that, that, um, that kind of insistence and consistency and in naming methodology and approach throughout 
to me um, felt really important and also to me feels like a hallmark of how I know you to move in the world. Um, and so I love that this chapter closes by kind of being like, all right, reader, your work. Um, yeah, yeah I, I love that. And I also think it's a little um, um, angry. Like I was really angry when I was working through that chapter and um, I really meant those questions in a kind of a mean way. <laughs> like, I really like, I love to imagine you know, just that professor that we've all had where we're like, you're just talking out your ass. I want that guy to sit down with his little journal and and respond to those questions. I really do. I want some people who I really love and respect in the academy to sit down and ask those questions. I think you're moving funny. Yeah. I really, I really think you're moving funny. And so I need you to to read that and respond. Um, and I'm hearing your response. I love, I, love a, I love a call I out. I love a call out. Or call in. You know, <laughs> do. it doesn't have to be a call out. It can be a call in. I don't call in. I call <laughs> out. But I love the people who can. <laughs> I appreciate that. I, 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 you know, you said <laughs> you asked, you don't necessarily ask people about their feelings. I always ask people about their feelings, but I can never do the calling out or the calling in. I'm like, I'm too shy. I'm just going to. Um, I want to have, I have two more questions for you. Yeah. Um, mostly about the concept of endurance and how one keeps going. Um, because as we've talked about, and as you name in the book, especially in this last chapter, exhaustion is a real thing. And this book came out earlier in the fall, but you've had a very long and significant relationship to it. Um, how'd you keep going? How'd you know you were supposed to keep going? What was it like when you're like, this this isn't working. <laughs> I need to walk away from the manuscript. And also to be in what I assume a very intense period of production during the most intense periods of COVID. Yeah, I mean, I think when I was... Uh you know, kind of leaving graduate school and everybody's like, okay, you got the dissertation. Now you got another, you know, seven years of writing the book. And uh, that long timeline, I couldn't, I didn't even like, I kind of had to laugh because I couldn't fathom, you know, um, the, the timeline that we were talking about. Luckily, and I don't know how this happened. I never got tired of the book. Maybe friends will read this and be like, girl, you are forgetting a lot, but <laughs> I didn't, I didn't experience an exhaustion with the book. And I think in part because that idea of the long timeline, okay, you're going to write this, you know, for another 10 years, actually in practice, you know, as you yourself are like living life and transforming, your ideas are living life and transforming and the writing is, you know, kind of transforming. And so it didn't feel like this ball and chain that I, um, I, I thought it was going to be or that it was supposed to be. So, I mean, luckily I never got um, sick of it in that way. Um, and at a certain point, the length of development became its own absurd part of my life that, um, it was kind of like, you know, it was just kind of absurd. And so it was just sort of like, oh my God, this is so weird. <laughs> like, will this ever be over? Um, like, and, and then, so when it starts to go into production, I was like, wait, this is really happening. I thought this was going to be with me forever, you know? So every step of the way has been a little surreal, I guess, is what is is what I'm saying. And I think that um, in the 
pandemic, I absolutely had the, I, you know, I was, you know, well, I guess, you know, since like 2016 had the most output, the most production I've ever had. Um, and I think just the rate of work and production, I'm like definitely a workhorse was getting me through the pandemic in certain kinds of ways. And I also was just, you know, when I would be, because I was quite exhausted, but I would always just think, well, I'll just get this off my desk, you know, and then I'll take a break. Then I'll be done. And, you know, here we are, however many years later, and it hasn't happened. <laughs> um, I am trying to think about the time I have here on earth and the time I have given the conditions of my employment where I do have time. Um, I'm trying to think about that as like a gift and I'm not one of those people that's like woo woo, but like, I'm really like, I have, you know, a couple more decades, several more decades. And I don't, I'm not trying to be like, oh, I like, you know, I need to maximize my output. Like I'm just reproducing neoliberalism in my own body. But I don't know something about that reframe of like, oh shit, I have a, several more decades and that's it. You know, it won't kill me to put my head down and like get my ideas out, you know, and what a gift that I have ideas, <laughs> you know, to feel anything is a huge gift right now. And so I'm trying to, uh, I don't know, think about that exhaustion as something that I can manage and I can live through. Um, and that the, my kind of like creative production will help me live through it really. And that's, um, helped me <laughs> keep doing it basically. Um, and I think, you know, that, that language around endurance that's in the book is directly from Elizabeth Pavanelli and, and her book Economies of Abandonment, which I don't know is such a rich book and such a rich document of how people make do and create lives worth living, uh, uh, amidst the sort of unrelenting pressure of having to stay alive. And um, I think her writing and, and her mode of being in the field and sort of, you know, writing about that experience helps me uh, put a different kind of timeline on, on who I am and what I do and, and what I can do. And so that's, you know, big ups to her. I love that book. There's, I mean, this, the bibliography for this book is exceptional. I was like, ooh, I have 80 new texts to add to my little <laughs> library over here. <laughs> um, Good. So I'm, I'm excited about that. Has the book, now that it's here, changed your relationship to dance or the dance floor? I haven't gone out in years, truly. Um, I like, yeah, I, I, I can't remember the last time that I did. And that feels terrible. I mean, I dance in my house, right? Like that I dance. Counts. I, that I, counts. I, you know, the, I, now I think about it. Yeah. My friend, uh, Moni was DJing at this art space, Wanawari in Seattle. And I, um, she was like, come through. I was like, I'll go for like 15 minutes. You know, I'm, I'm busy. I have to get on the couch. And I stood next to her DJ booth and danced for three hours straight by myself. And, well, you know, with her, like, you know, and it just, that, I haven't felt that in a really long time. Um, and so 
I don't know if the book coming out has changed my relationship to dance per se, but it's definitely changed my relationship to going out, you know, to going to the party, which I don't want to do anymore, you know, and I think a lot of people don't want to do anymore. Um, so I think it has allowed me to kind of consolidate for my own self, like what, what do I like about going out? What don't I like about going out? How can I take what I do like about going out and apply it in other scenes? I don't want to dance with other people. I want to dance alone amongst other people, but leave me alone. Provide, you know, and and so cocoon. don't look at me. Don't touch me. Don't come over by me. Um, and I can do that in a lot of different kinds of spaces. Like I don't have to go necessarily and be amongst the 21 year olds, you know, I, I just don't, I can't anymore. Um, so I think it has been a really beautiful process to write this book, to work on this book for 10 some years, to grow older over those 10 some years and have my own needs change and feel like the book um, is documenting that process for, for me and other people and is also trying to provide a reader with some like straight up tips for crafting a nightlife space that feels like they can grow into it and like grow older in because I think a lot of us want that like we want to be around one another but I don't want to be wasted on the dance floor anymore or around other people who are doing that anymore you know like in that kind of way and so I think I I really think about the book as a conversation as well about how can we transform the experiences of being on the queer dance floor into other sites, other spaces, other interactions? I think that's a lovely way to end. Thanks, Kimmy. Thank you. I'm so glad that we had this conversation and thank you for reading so beautifully. I loved it. Momus the Podcast is edited by Jacob Irish. Thanks to Jessica Lin and Dr. Kemi Adeyemi for their contributions to this season, and a special thanks to Kuijin Z for her support. You can find us at patreon.com backslash momusart, or contact me personally about making a one-time contribution at skygooden at momus.ca. This has been episode 43 of Momus the Podcast. We said that the last one was 43, but actually this one is 43. <laughs> Lucky 43. <laughs> <laughs>